Oh, look, here's another one. This time, a journalist attacking the accuracy and reliability of the Bible. And once again, Kirby Anderson finds this one, like all the others, lacking. Here on Probe. Recently, New Testament scholar Dr. Dan Wallace addressing our strong confidence in our modern translations mentioned others presenting a false view of the situation. One example, the Bible so misunderstood it's a sin by Kurt Eichenwald appeared in Newsweek. This article presents arguments intended to undermine the New Testament. Let's evaluate some of these arguments to be better equipped in sharing the truth. Eichenwald begins by parroting negative stereotypes about American evangelicals. Adding rigor to his rant, he states, A Pew Research poll in 2010 found that evangelicals ranked only a smidgen higher than atheists in familiarity with the New Testament and Jesus' teachings. He refers to a table showing the average number of questions out of 12 answered correctly. However, only two of the 12 related to the New Testament and none to the teachings of Jesus. Two questions are not enough to evaluate someone's knowledge of the New Testament, but for the record, the two questions were, name the four Gospels, and where, according to the Bible, was Jesus born? 53% of those professing to be born again answered these correctly versus 20% of atheists. Apparently, to Kurt Eichenwald, a smidgen higher must mean almost three times as many. Eichenwald spends two pages bemoaning the translation problems in the New Testament, but as pointed out by Dr. Wallace and others, his critique really serves to highlight the excellence of today's translations. The areas he points out as having questionable additions in the text are clearly marked in all of today's modern translations, and if removed, make no difference in the overall message of the New Testament. He also lists three short passages claiming that they did not appear in early Greek copies. Upon examination, we find that one of those passages does not appear in modern translations. The other two do appear in the translations. Why? Well, because they appear in numerous early Greek manuscripts. Once again, his scholarship is found wanting. You know, all scholars agree that there are various variations between ancient manuscripts from different areas, but they do not change the meaning. As Wallace points out, we are getting closer and closer to the text of the original. The New Testament has more manuscripts that are within a century or two of the original than anything else from the Greco-Roman world. If we have to be skeptical, that skepticism should be multiplied 1,000 times for other Greco-Roman literature. Tomorrow, we'll look at some of the contradictions Eichenwall says are apparent in the biblical record. This has been Probe with your host, Kirby Anderson. Download your free copy of Steve Cable's transcript, The Bible Intentionally Misunderstood, at probe.org. Then join us next time as we shine God's light into our darkened culture, here on Probe. Kurt Eichenwald continues attacking the Bible with nine different topics he claims reveal contradictions in the biblical record. Let's examine three of them to see if his arguments have substance. First, he claims that there are three different creation models stating careful readers have long known that the two stories of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 contradict each other. However, a clear-headed examination sees chapter 1 describing the overall creation while chapter 2 talks about the creation of Adam and Eve. As commentators explain, what follows Genesis 2-4 is not another account of creation, but a tracing of events from creation through fall and judgment. In his third creation model, the world is created in the aftermath of a battle between God and a dragon called Rahab. Reading the relevant verses show no creation story, but rather the creature Rahab representing Egypt. Job 9.13 says, Under God, the helpers of Rahab lie crushed. Some speculate this could relate to the Babylonian creation epic. But Eichenwall's claim of the three different creation models is an illusion. 
His second claim states that the Gospel of John was written when Gentiles in Rome were gaining dramatically more influence over Christianity, and that explains why the Romans are largely absolved from responsibility for Jesus' death and blame instead is pointed towards the Jews, implying that the other Gospels put much more blame on the Romans. Examining his claim, in Luke we read that the chief priests were trying to find some way to execute Jesus, while the Roman government did not find Jesus guilty of anything of death. We can also read then Matthew and Mark, the same thing, and all the Gospels place the blame on the Jewish nation. There's no shift in perspective in John. In a third supposed contradiction, Kurt Eichenwald writes, As told in Matthew, the disciples go to Galilee after the crucifixion and see Jesus ascend to heaven. In Acts written by Luke, the disciples stay in Jerusalem and see Jesus ascend from there. The Gospel of Matthew ends saying nothing about Jesus ascending to heaven. In Acts, Luke says the Lord was with his disciples over a 40-day period and could have easily traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee and back. Not surprisingly, his other six so-called contradictions all fail to hold up when one examines the scriptures. Tomorrow, we'll see how he misapplies scripture to the topic of homosexuality. Kurt Eichenwald wants to show what we think the Bible teaches about homosexuality is not what God intended. He begins by pointing out that the word homosexual did not even exist until 1800 years after the New Testament was written. These modern Bibles just made it up. But this could be said of many English words used today. A respected dictionary of New Testament words defines the Greek word he questions as a male engaging in same-gender sexual activity, a sodomite. He then tells us not to trust 1 Timothy when it lists homosexuality as sin because most biblical scholars agree that Paul did not write 1 Timothy. The early church fathers from the 2nd century on and many contemporary scholars do not agree it is a forgery. Regardless, the same prohibition appears in other epistles and not just in 1 Timothy. Eichenwall points out in Romans, Corinthians, and Timothy discuss other sins in more detail than homosexual behavior. He writes, So yes, there is one verse in Romans about homosexuality, and there are eight verses condemning those who criticize the government. Most people understand that explaining our relationship to the government is more complex than forbidding homosexuality, which is clearly understood. He claims that people are not banished for other sins, such as adultery, greed, and lying. But if you proclaimed you practice those actions regularly and teach them as truth, your church is going to remove you from any leadership position. They should still encourage you to attend worship services out of a desire to see God change your heart. But Eichenwald would be surprised to learn that most evangelical churches handle issues with homosexuality in the same way. Then he declares plenty of fundamentalist Christians who have no idea where references to homosexuality in the New Testament always fall back on Leviticus. Personally, I've never run into another church member who was unfamiliar with the New Testament but knew the details of Leviticus. In summary, Eichenwald believes we should declare homosexuality is not a sin and those who practice it should be honored as leaders within the church. He does not suggest that we treat any other sin that way. He does not present a cogent argument that the New Testament agrees with his position. He is saying that we should ignore biblical teaching. But we really do love those people struggling with homosexual behavior and want to help them gain freedom from those lusts just as anyone struggling with opposite sex issues. Tomorrow we'll look at some other interpretation issues identified in this article. 
You know, to strengthen his position on homosexuality, Eichenwald calls out a fundamental conflict in the New Testament, arguably the most important one in the Bible. As Christians, are we to obey the Mosaic Law or to ignore it? He claims that the author of Matthew made it clear that Christians must keep the Mosaic Law like the most religious Jews in order to achieve salvation. He says this is contrary to Paul's message of salvation through grace, not works. What a mistaken understanding. In Matthew, Jesus explains that to enter God's kingdom, our righteousness must surpass that of the most religious Jews. We must not get angry, call people names, or lust even once. In fact, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus clearly taught we cannot be good enough. Only through his sacrifice can we be made righteous. In Acts 15, some believers with Pharisaical backgrounds brought the Mosaic Law up to the apostles. Peter told them, Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as the Gentiles also are. The apostles and the whole church agreed to send the Gentiles word that they were not required to follow the law. Eichenwald is right. We are not required to follow the law. The New Testament is very careful to identify actions and attitudes which are sin so that we may try to avoid them. This truth is why sexual sins are specifically mentioned in the New Testament. Even in Acts 15, the apostles tell Gentile Christians to abstain from fornication, a term covering all sexual activity outside of marriage. Eichenwald also castigates us for disobeying the biblical teaching about government. He says that Romans has eight verses condemning those who criticize the government. Pat Robertson sinned by stating, we need to pray to be delivered from this president. Actually, Romans says that let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. The person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God. We're not required to say good things about the government, but rather to obey the law. Our Bill of Rights states that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So if we do not voice our opinions about our government, we are not availing ourselves of the law established by our governing authorities. Tomorrow we'll examine what Eichenwald says about our prayer habits. As we examine popular arguments against the Bible, we will conclude by looking at prayer. In his Newsweek article, Kurt Eichenwald castigates a Houston prayer rally saying that John Perry boomed out a long prayer asking God to make America a better place, babbling on about faith and country and blessings of America. He claimed that Perry heaped up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. In reality, Perry prayed succinctly for about two minutes with no empty phrases. Eichenwall explains Perry is just an example of our error. Most Christians are disobeying by praying in front of people. Jesus told us, whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray so that they may be seen by others. But someone can speak a prayer before others without being a hypocrite. Jesus does tell us to make our prayers a personal conversation with our God. But Jesus prayed often before the synagogue attenders, in front of his disciples, and before over 5,000 people. Those times, although numerous, were less than the time he spent praying alone, as should be true for us. Eichenwall says we should repeat the Lord's Prayer verbatim. But in Matthew, Jesus gives us an example of how to pray, not a set of words to repeat meaninglessly. The New Testament contains many prayers offered by the apostles, and none repeat the words from the Lord's Prayer. So if Eichenwall were to instruct them, the apostles would not have sinned so grievously. 
Heichenwald claims that the only reason anyone could pray in front of a large crowd or on television is to be seen. This claim does not make sense. The people he is judging can build themselves up without having to resort to prayer. You know, this week we have seen that critics use an incomplete, shallow examination of Scripture to claim that it is not accurate and that our application is faulty. In every case, we have seen that these claims leak like a sieve. Dan Wallace concludes by saying, But his numerous factual errors and misleading statements, his lack of concern for any semblance of objectivity, his apparent disdain for genuine evangelical scholarship, and his uber-confidence about being more than a few suspect viewpoints makes me wonder Eichenwald's grasp of genuine biblical scholarship is at best subpar. If Eichenwald's article represents the best arguments discrediting the Bible, one rejoices in our firm foundation. However, realizing many readers of such pieces don't know their flimsy nature, one is saddened by the potential impact on society inclined to ignore the Bible.